Hey, Ben. How you doing, Nico? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. How's the fishing? It's been great. Yeah. Wonderful time of year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like, you know, I love how you're always so prepared for fishing. It's the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. It is. But let me ask you this, Ben, you always have a plan for your fishing. Do you have a plan for your insurance? No. You don't? I really? don't. Really? Well, I'll tell you what. I think maybe you should give Jeremy a call. We've gone fishing a few times with Jeremy. Oh, yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah, I love it. I'll tell you what. Talk to Jeremy. It takes him a minute to get you the information to get that you need for your insurance plan. Um, auto insurance, life insurance, home, you name it. What do you think? I'm going to do it. Awesome. Let me give you his phone number, 775-657-6050. You get that? You write it down, 775-657-6050. Got it? I will call him right now. Love it. Love it. And that's Jeremy at Oxner Insurance. Oxner Insurance is a proud sponsor of the Bearfish Alliance, and we're proud to have him on this podcast. So again, Oxner Insurance, 775-657-6050, and put shields of protection around your assets. Okay, and welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. And today, we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Dave Preston of Weekend Magazine, also known as the Guru of the Good Life. Ah, yes. I love titles. <laughs> I've been watching The Crown. I don't have that same luxury of living like that. <laughs> well, we're, we're excited to have you. And Thank you. Your time, I know, is very in demand, so it means a lot to us. And... Um, you know, our podcast, as our listener knows, focuses on burritos, breaks, and flies. And a, a very key piece of that is the culinary side. So, you know, I just wanted to see if we could get an idea from you. Who is Dave Preston? Well, <laughs> uh, basically, I try to explain to people, I've been doing food and wine uh, in, in one form or the other, certainly eating and drinking but I've been a food and wine writer for 45 years. It's been my passion, it's been my life. Uh, I have had the great pleasure of dining on every continent other than Antarctica. I have literally eaten food around the world. And I'm, I'm a curious person, I love to eat, and uh, particularly when I go into a restaurant somewhere out of the world, out of the country rather, uh, I find something I like and go bullying my way into the kitchen to make the chef tell me how to cook it, uh, that type of thing. I've, um, in Reno the last 20 years, in Reno, of course, I've had uh, the media show for about 16 years. I also had uh, a couple of good television runs, too, which was all about the local restaurants. Uh, one was called Dinner with Dave, and the other was called Dave's Diners, and it was just basically introducing people to the local eateries. Back in 2008, 2009, when things got really, really tight, and actually into 2011, uh, we, we came up with a way to get people into restaurants in Northern Nevada, uh, and I created a help with the chef, create a, a small menu at a fair price, and that was uh, that, that really did help. Uh, as far as my credentials, uh, I have a lot of alphabet after my name, 
uh, probably the most significant. Uh, in uh, 2018, I was inducted to the American Academy of Chefs, which is the uh, um, the top of the American Culinary Federation. It's uh, it's uh, you're invited to join, uh, and it was uh, quite a privilege. I also served as the uh, chairman of the International Food Service Executive Association, which is a 113 year old organization worldwide. Wow! And my wow. world chef certified, certified by the world chefs. And I've judged probably the I have judged the most prestigious competition uh, in the world, the Bacuse d'Or uh, in Lyon, France, uh, which was the 30th year. It's only every the year, so it's been around for 60 years. And it was supposed to be this coming January, but of course that's not going to happen. Right. I look forward to going back there one day because uh, it is a competition of the world, not individual chefs, but countries. So it is uh, it is very very intense five-day competition and believe me they do they work magic and they work it based on the old Escoffier approach to cooking and of course Escoffier is the father of the modern restaurant the modern uh, menu uh, he, he created uh, he created what a restaurant kitchen should look like how it should be positioned so uh, it, it is to me as I say the most prestigious part of, uh, of, of cooking in the world it, uh, one American who was there, uh, who folks may know, is Thomas Keller of the French Laundry. He was a judge because he did, in fact, uh, can't remember how many years ago, but he did win it. So it, it was, it was great. I, I guess the one great takeaway from that experience was in Lyon, France, which unquestionably is the gastronomic capital of the world. Uh, my uh, life's passion uh, has always been to go to a three-star Michelin. So in five days, I went to three three-star Michelin's. <laughs> so now, if my That's maiden amazing. calls, I'll be happy. Right. <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. That really is amazing. You know, and the reason that we wanted to have you on our podcast, um, I think I wanted to take a little bit different approach than what we normally do, because we do have a heavy focus on, on fly fishing. And of course, we try to dive into cuisine, um, whereas as basic as we've been diving in, I thought we would take this opportunity to go a little bit deeper. And, and take a dive in a different direction than just a normal preparation for, you know, let's say a, a wild game fish or a store-bought fish. Um, I thought we could tie in a little bit uh, of the history of a local fish, which is the Lahontan cutthroat trout mm -hmm. uh, out of Pyramid Lake. And, you know, this fish used to run wild uh, before the settlers came. Uh, it ran wild in between Pyramid Lake up the Truckee River and into Lake Tahoe. So this fish would share all this body of water all year round, you know. Uh, it would spawn in the Truckee River, and then if it was fond of Tahoe, it'd stay in Tahoe, and if it was fond of Pyramid, it was staying in Pyramid. Uh, 1905, they were cut off from running up and down uh, the river. However, they were still very well sought, sought after by fish markets, by settlers, by local mining camps, and very quickly uh, found themselves uh, basically extinct uh, to the point where they had to be replenished by another fish uh, out of a local river, or I'm sorry, a local pond. Uh, was it Walker, Lake Walker, I believe? And they took the strain of pyramids out of there, or the strain of Lahan cutthroat trouts and put them in Pyramid Lake. So it wasn't the natural indigenous species that was in there, but it survived and it fit the bill up until the late 1930s, early 1940s, where it was still you know, rhythmically fished out, and to the point where they just were gone, disappeared. Wow. And from that point, they saw a little bit of protection 
and they limited uh, the amount of commercial fishing and just basically said no more commercial. It has to be all recreational, you know, and set limits and whatnot. But by that time, the damage was done. You know, they already cut off the spawning ground. Um, there was railheads going up and down the uh, the west side of Pyramid Lake. Matter of fact, you can still see the mounds where the rail lines ran um, in the archways where they just ran ice cars up and down to pick these fish up. So we were looking at it going, well, what, what made this fish so desirable? And we were looking at it, well, obviously it was delicious to eat, <laughs> you know, out here. Uh, there wasn't, there was, there was game and, and whatnot to pick from, you know, they would bring cattle, they would hunt the deer, um, however, they needed something else and that was the fish. And we found that what made this fish so delectable and so sought after was that it was more sought after as a trout, as because it was called the salmon trout at first, uh, before it got its official name, uh, which was Lahontan, which is French by the way. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, and this was hauled off to fish markets, um, east and west. It would make its way to San Francisco Bay Area um, and find itself in restaurants there, and then make its way up and down the coastline. And then it would also find its way to a railhead in Salt Lake City, and then find its way uh, find its way east, you know, to some of the finer restaurants. But I think from from us, we're like looking at a chef's perspective on what 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 makes. Um, either a trout or a salmon so desirable and, and maybe what fed you know into that that fury you know to, to find a fish like this you know what you know without us actually having it here obviously you had options you know these Atlantic salmons or the king salmons and whatnot so I don't know just maybe a little perspective on well it's, it's interesting you mentioned that um, right now about 50% of all the salmon that is distributed in the United States is caught on the Pacific coast a lot of people not aware that that's where about 50% of all the salmon in this country, the Atlantic salmon is still caught, but it's not, it, it, every year it dwindles more and more. Um, I think the thing with, first of all, uh, when you're cooking trout, there's not a lot of ways to cook trout. There's just not a whole lot of ways to cook trout. And uh, the Lahontan, particularly the way that I've had it prepared, I think is uh, the easiest and also uh, uh, Preserves a flavored fish, and it's a basic frying technique. Uh, Interesting. And, uh, you you take the uh, the fish. Now let, let me say something about trout in particular. One thing that's very interesting about trout is once you clean it and scale it, uh, you should let it rest for at least 24 hours in a refrigerator. And I kind of put it in a bag or something. And what you're going to find, particularly if you're going to fry it, it won't buckle. It won't bone. Uh, so that's a that's an old old. Uh, my, uh, my grandmother who taught me to cook uh, always had, when she had trout, uh, she always did that. And I remember she would wrap it uh, in a, in a uh, like a, almost like a beer wrap and just let it rest for, before she cooked it for 24 hours. And it, it doesn't tend to go. Now, if it's fillets, it's not so much of a problem. But if you're going to cook the whole fish, uh, then with the, with the trout, the easiest thing in my mind is to, in about approximately one inch, Steaks, cut it all the way down into one steaks. So you're not going. You're, you're actually going to cut it, cut it up, and then what you want to do is a simple breading, a little egg wash, and a simple breading. And and here's the trick. Here's the thing I like about particularly game fish. I have discovered that panko is a much better dust than white flour uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one, uh, with the panko, particularly if you're going to fry it in olive oil. 
the fish holds up better as, as does the crust uh, with the panko. Now there's two, two thoughts on that. You can take the, the crisp panko or if you want to put it in a food processor if you don't like that texture you can break it down and it'll have about the same consistency. Be a little stiffer than a white flour but I like to use panko. You can use white flour and it's simply you just dust it and uh, frying it in a, uh, in a pan. A lot of restaurants that have salamanders which is like a broiler and I caution people at home in your stove. The broiler at home in your stove is not a salamander in a restaurant. They are two different things. So if you hear the word broil uh, that the chef is using in a restaurant, he's using a, a device that is designed to broil. And it's usually eye level so you can always see it and uh, you can pay attention to it because what we all know about fish is it doesn't take long to cook and it's real easy to ruin. So you have to be very careful right. with cooking fish. So I just basically would, um, again, it preserves the flavor, it dusts it. I have a little thing I like to do, uh, is I will use uh, olive oil, but sometimes I also like to create a brown butter and I'll mix that together when I then, uh, when I fry it. A lot of times, uh, if you have a, say, the salamander, I, I will see them, they'll, they'll brown it each side quickly and then they'll throw the salamander to finish it. And, uh, but yet at home, I think in a, in a frying pan, as I say, you just kick each side. You're talking five minutes at the most. It just really comes fast. And uh, you just have to be very, once it's breaded, you don't really, you're not able to see it. So you can't see if it becomes translucent or anything, but you just have to pay attention. And uh, as I say, the rule of thumb is three and two. I, three on one side, two on the other, and uh, you're almost guaranteed it's done. So you go mostly by time as opposed to a visual check. Well, if you're if it's coated, if it's coated, you have a hard time with a visual check, and especially the little steaks. Uh, I, I I like to. I uh, my mother, my grandmother taught me to cook using three things: my nose, my mouth, and my finger. And uh, so when you can taste it, you can, but you can smell it. Uh, but uh, a fish, like uh, other pieces, that you can you can feel. If you push on one side of it, you're going to feel whether it feels soggy or it feels infirm. And uh, that's just about these. But uh, I, I say three minutes on one side, two minutes on the other. And you usually say under a, a medium heat, a medium, medium high. Not, don't go. I, I always tell people it's, it, you might want to have to turn it one more time, but you don't want to turn it over and it's black. I mean, the other thing is the panko is another thing that I think both, both the panko and the flower, will, the color will come out. It will, uh, particularly in a flower, flour it will get to be a golden brown. The panko will actually crisp up. You will actually see the reaction from the panko will crisp up. So. That's great. Yeah, interesting. And you know another question that we had for you was you know uh, related to the size of the fish because most trout if you're bringing specifically a trout you know from market uh, into the kitchen you know we're talking about a certain size. Right. It's not fairly big. Whereas something along the lines of Lahontan back in the days when they're bringing it to market. Uh, records were, were indicating that these fish were anywhere from the 24 to like 36 pound range, yeah. which probably completely changes the dynamic of, of preparation. Uh, how much a chef could get out of, uh, of each fish, you know, and how many portions he could put on the table, and in turn, you know, what, these, what they were charging for it back in the day, which was pretty incredible. And if I could mention that they were, uh, I have record of a old hotel in Goldfield that 
burned down in the 1880s. However, before it burned down, uh, Mark Twain used to make acquaintance to that restaurant, did find a copy of that menu, and that particular plate uh, for the Lahontan cutthroat trout for a filet uh, was, in that time, was over or at $100 of their money then. So, which equates to something ridiculous now, I think, in the fifteen to seventeen hundred dollar range if you do, you know, add the inflation and whatnot. That's kind of absurd, but it shows you people were willing to pay. Well, if you if you have a large trout, and I mean if you're obviously most trout I look at are twelve, fourteen inches there. If you take the head off, you right. want to take the head and tail off, obviously you control it. But if you have something that big, probably it would be better to put it in the oven and bake it to do a bake on that. And uh, when you're making that, making a trout, again, it's a pretty simplistic thing. It's not a lot of, you know, you, you can stuff it, you can create stuffing and so forth. But when you bake, and I've had this, I've seen this with my, my grandfather's fishing lodge with the game fish. Uh, and it's a really simple, really simple process. It's a clean fish. And so basically all you're going to have is you're going to have some parsley, you're going to have some thyme, and you're going to have some dill. You're going to have some lemon wedges. You're going to have some butter, and that's about it. And so, what you're going to do is you're going to fill the cavity uh, with the dill and the thyme uh, and, and the uh, parsley, and then you're going to put. Uh, I, I take the uh, lemon and I cut it in the, and keep the cylindrical. Say you, you cut it into slices that are uh, cylindrical. Place that in on top of the lemon. Place uh, and, and, and get cold butter and cut little pads, and on top just fill it with cold butter. Close it down. On the outside, you almost do the same treatment, uh, and then you wrap it in a foil uh, because that will cause uh, that will cause a, a, a kind of a steaming effect. And again, it's keeping it pretty simplistic. The flavor is very simplistic. I always go one step further, and I'll put in about a half a cup. And I'll, I'll make a boat out of a piece of aluminum, and I'll put in a uh, about a half a cup of some kind of white wine, uh, just to, to add one more level. But uh, the simplicity, I mean, uh, uh, the Lahatan trout, I have never had it, but I have seen, I have seen it served. So it's kind of interesting. But um, again, you're preserving the flavor in uh, any type of game fish kind of has its own signature so you, as far as flavor goes. I don't think you ever want to overwhelm it uh, where all of a sudden you taste the flavoring and no longer do you have a, a taste of the fish. So those are, again, the simplicity in many ways is what gourmet cooking is all about. The secret of gourmet cooking is having the fresh, correct ingredients uh, and understanding your preparation. But uh, baking the oven, once again, you're gonna bake it in the oven. You're t depending on the size, you're talking 15, 20 minutes. It's not a long bake. Uh, I have never, um, I, I have never tried, but I am aware of poaching trout. And it, again, is a very simplistic uh, endeavor. Uh, again, that's a white wine preparation. You'll always find uh, in baking or poaching that white wine and butter will work with just about any type of fish, uh, with the exception of catfish. I will, I will, uh, I will not, I would not, I would not suggest it. One of the other things, if you're baking trout, uh, and this is depending on a farm-raised versus wild. Uh, very, very important. Uh, a lot of times, depending on the season, time of year, with the trout, 
one of the things that I was told works very well if it's a, it's particularly in the uh, spawning season, if you have a trout, is to put it in buttermilk and uh, put it in buttermilk for about two hours in a refrigerator. Uh, if it's a spawn, because it usually is a little stronger flavor at that particular period. So the buttermilk really kind of uh, settles it down. And I, I caution people to get really good buttermilk. 1% uh, buttermilk is not buttermilk. Uh, Ooh, buttermilk right. is fat. And so pay right. very close attention uh, to getting a straight buttermilk that is not low-fat buttermilk to me is an oxymoron. <laughs> I mean, if, if you right. really, you know, right. people don't understand, buttermilk used to be what was left in the churn after they made the butter, and it was super rich, uh, and yes. just absolutely delicious. So, one of the ways to calm down a, 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 a game fish that is, uh, particularly as I say, particularly the time of year, is uh, is buttermilk, and that tends to uh, take the edge off, and uh, it, it doesn't change the flavor whatsoever. It just uh, somehow the chemistry. First of all, biggest mystery to people is cooking is chemistry folks. It is a chemistry. You have to create a chemical formula to make the food work. And uh, something like fish, uh, a game year fish that buttermilk has a chemical reaction uh, with the fish flesh and it really just mellows it out. Um, it's also classic in, in, in certain bottom fish, particularly catfish. You know, you, you've heard they soak a catfish in milk. But the trout, uh, the, the wild game fish, uh, my grandmother always would use buttermilk. And speaking of the wild game fish, you did share a story with me that I'd like the audience to hear about, uh, about the uh, the perch oh, that you grew up on, yeah. on Lake Erie. I grew up in Lake Erie. <laughs> I grew up in Lake Erie, and uh, it was it was probably into my high school years that the pollution uh, along the south shore of Lake Erie, which was from Toledo to Cleveland, became extreme. As a matter of fact, I vividly remember, I lived right outside of Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River, which runs through Cleveland to Wood Burn. The river was literally on fire. The pollution was that bad. Oh, wow. And that, of course, the Cuyahoga flowed into Lake Erie. And the pollution along that south shore uh, became so extreme that a fabulous little game fish I grew up catching and living off of was a Lake Erie perch. Uh, just a delightful little fish, easy to fry, wonderful flavor, easy to bone. That was one of the great things and why it was so popular. Easy to bone, and so they literally closed. Uh, the, they literally closed all the fishing along the south shore of Lake Erie. Well, the Army Corps of Engineers went in and uh, went through a reclamation process that went on for 14 years. And uh, by the time I had left, gone to college, <coughs> they were still not fishing it. But I had the occasion uh, three years ago, uh, two years ago, to go back and visit my sister and her husband. They still live in Ohio, and they have a summer home on Catawba Island. Uh, and they knew I was coming, and they went out and caught Lake Erie perch. So that would have been the first time in 50 years that I had had Lake Erie perch. Wow. But uh, it was it was quite the it was quite the, the joy. The other thing I should mention is my grandmother. My grandfather and my grandmother had a fishing lodge. They, they, my grandfather had uh, Texaco gas stations in Cleveland, and I'll tell you that, why that's a backstory. But they had a they had a fishing lodge on the Trent River in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, which was exactly 100 miles straight north of Buffalo, because we'd get on a ferry and cross from Buffalo into Canada, and then we'd drive up. And this was, uh, it, it had a lodge, and they had 60 fishermen every week come in 
and it was way back in. Uh, they had generators because they only had so much hours of electricity that was turned on and turned off by the, the municipality. So that was, but she taught me to cook, and I, I uh, my grandfather for years held the world's uh, the Canadian record for muscalange, uh, I mean the largemouth bass, uh, pike, uh, just everything, uh, just the greatest game fish in the world. Wow. And they cooked, my grandmother who taught me to cook, uh, cooked on a wood-burning stove. She got up every morning at four o'clock and baked on a wood-burning stove wow. for 60 people. Uh, and their only refrigeration was a block ice house. And that had big blocks of ice with sawdust and that's how they refrigerated. So I remember that well, but uh, she cooked every Friday because in the day, based on the religion of the day in those days, Friday was fish day. And so she would do it. Virtually everything she cooked was fried because it was the simplest, easiest, and fastest way to get it done. And uh, you know, that was the, because it wasn't like people could pack it nice and take it home, it wasn't. Now the reason that they owned that lodge, and this, they owned that lodge from the early 30s. Uh, my grandfather was in the bootlegging business and the Trent River, of course, connects all the Great Lakes. And of course it went down into Lake Erie and so his Texaco gas stations uh, were the convenience shops for the hooch. So, <laughs> and I have some really interesting pictures. Wow, <laughs> that's great. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I go back in my history. So I have a little dirty secret about me and booze. So. Oh my. <laughs> and I'm curious, so what brought you out to Reno? Okay, um, yeah, that was an interest. I, I was uh, in the Bay Area, and I actually was in the Bay Area. I, my early career was in, in the network television journalism. I, that's what I did. And eventually I ended up in San Francisco, and I worked as an anchorman and a reporter in San Francisco. And the second baby came along, and it was a different world back there. We were working on what they call 16-week contracts. So after 16 weeks, they can go, bye. Wow. <laughs> no notice, no nothing. And with two kids, you know, that kind of became iffy. So I got into a publishing business, ran that for a while. Uh, and then when this thing called the internet came along, my little brain said, nobody's going to buy magazines anymore. So I had a chance to sell it. I did and went back and got my MBA. Uh, and of course, I, I had a law degree. So got into, uh, into merger acquisition law and fundraising for this business called the dot-coms. And I was very active in the dot-com community, big time active, ran a large, ended up running a large computer company. But the dot-coms, in a period of nine months, uh, did a $43 billion dump uh, around 1997, 98. They just disappeared. And it, there were a lot of reasons which I won't go into. But after that, I was consulting. Uh, a big client of the unit picked me up to do consulting. And then this thing called 9-11 hit the world. Mm -hmm. And kaboom. It was like overnight, my entire income, my entire existence evaporated. Uh, and living in the Bay Area, uh, having a five-bedroom house, uh, it just it, there were definitely again. I had this clairvoyancy about you know what you know not being able to make anything happen. So I had a friend up here, gave me a part-time job, came up, and that was 2001, November of 2001. So basically. Right now, this begins my 21st year in Reno to this month. Wow. So, oh, wow. That's so exciting. Well, congratulations on yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> That's what, how I got here. What have you noticed about the change in Reno from a culinary perspective and anything else that has stood out? Well, clearly there's a, there's a huge interest uh, in culinary, but culinary has expanded its concepts on uh, uh, molecular gastronomy. Uh, 
jumped in as a trend. Uh, we got away from it's always steak and potatoes. You know, we, we, we chefs became younger, more creative, more energetic. Uh, they created markets. They created sub markets. They uh, restaurants became a little more specialized. Uh, you know, you, you find that they were, uh, but you, you, you. It's just a different energy, and chefs willing to be more creative. In the restaurant business, they teach you to build a menu, and this is what you live from. All of a sudden, a lot of chefs said, "Well, I'm going to try something different, so I'm going to create a special week." A lot of times, it was way beyond the purview of their menu. It was something that's like, "Wow, wait." I remember that when I first started seeing uh, Chilean sea bass, uh, which is really not a menu standard, uh, and it kind of transcended. You know, it, it started to come, you know, come into, and people started creating different ways to make it. Um, the one fish that I miss up here that they used to they used to have, I think there's only one place in town, was the Dover sole, um, and, right. uh, and that is that's an exquisite fish. Uh, I, I had the pleasure one day of uh, I was at the London on business, and I see this see this sign that says Dover Soul reservations required, and I thought I'd never had Dover Soul, so I made a reservation in the hotel I was at, and uh, went in and ate, and and it was such a ceremony. If you've never seen it, I mean, if if you know a maitre d, uh, the ceremony of presenting Dover Soul is truly a culinary experience, but more importantly, it was time stamped on the menu. It was caught at 5:40 that morning. And so the That's menu great. is timestamped too. Wow. And when I got the bill, it was timestamped too, believe me. Uh, I think I think for the fish alone, and this is a few years ago, it was $185 US just for the fish. Because in the restaurant that I was eating, everything was all a car, even the water. So I mean, it was uh, pretty pricey. But I mean, that kind of ceremony about fish can, can be had. That's amazing. And, and for that $185 that you spent, would you say that I mean, well yeah, spent. I mean, it was well spent. It was well spent because most importantly, and this is the thing about food and presentation in restaurants, presentation. It, again, it's about the presentation, the service, the quality of service. The I, I always called it the show business of food. And if you are good actors uh, in the show business of food, you get a tip. You understand. And people that get into the service business who become successful are very great presenters. They're congenial. They're personable. Uh, they want to pay attention, but not be a nuisance. So you know that's that's the key. And uh, and, and I, again, that's that's um, you know part of the problem in food today is there we are now uh, our society is a oriented to fast food, and that means boom 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 boom. You know, I don't want to go to dinner if I can't stand it. Stay there two and a half hours. I the, the worst dinner to me is twenty minutes. That's not a dinner. That's you know, that's a you know, that's indigestion waiting to happen. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the problem we have, and if you go to Europe, you go to Europe, and you go into finer restaurants in Europe, do not expect them to serve you at your pace. You sit back and you eat as long as it takes for them to get you the food, and they'll do it based on the way that you should be eating. Uh, if you ever go to France and watch people drink coffee, they drink a demi-tasse cup of coffee for three hours. Now, that's a lot of drinking for essentially two ounces of coffee. But it's it's their lifestyle. It's it's uh, and you know for better or for worse, I think if Americans started to realize the importance of that type of lifestyle, particularly in dining, things would be a lot different. We 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 know this that you know you don't chew your food enough. I mean, we go through the liturgy of all the reasons right. that Americans are obese, but a great meal has to do with the fact that they put food in their mouth as fast as they can 
and get it over. It's almost, you know, it's like, I got to get this over with. That, that's an interesting uh, piece to us. You know, we have the fly fishing side of the podcast, and a lot of times, you know, when we catch uh, a fish, you know, we handle it with reverence. Most of the time, there's not a need to cook it. You put it back. But I always think, you know, as I'm, I'm uh, picking up a fish or netting a fish, you know, keeping it in the water, if this was on a menu somewhere else from, you know, now that the Truckee River is, is getting fresher and fresher and Pyramid Lake, I just think of how rare this opportunity is, what it would appear, what it really would take to prepare it the correct way, which is so well, interesting to us, as you've said. And, and I think translating, translating that, that reverence and appreciation, like what Ben just described, physically catching the fish, you know, going through that routine and, and handling it with care, looking at it, appreciating its beauty, is the same thing that you're conveying to us that we should all appreciate as Americans that time in the kitchen, that time that that chef takes to prepare that perfectly for you. And and where that ingredient came from, whether it's a salmon or whether it's a game meat or whatever the case may be, you know, the time and the effort put into that. And when it's brought to your table, it's not just shoveling it down your mouth, it's being able to appreciate the meal as a whole, the ingredient as a whole, and the work that went into it to bring it to you, you know, to appreciate it. Entirely. Which is an interesting, is a great observation, and I want to put it here, I'm sure many people have heard of a three-star mission, and people yes. don't realize that the food is only getting in the door, the only way you'll even be considered if your food is good, it then moves beyond the quality of the environment, the quality of the people, the consistency and presentation and service. The three-star mission comes from being able to give your customer an experience, not just a plate of food. And believe me, most people don't realize it takes at least five yard, five years to get a three star. And wow. it is very, very, very select. I mean, the second year, the study in the, in the Michelin in the second year is what has this ownership done to improve the quality of the restaurant, the environment of the restaurant, and the education and confidence in the serve staff. The kitchen, again, the first year they, they try the food and the second year they come back and the food's the same, then they start working on the other side of it. But very simply said, once they, they're convinced you know the food is good, they have a concept the chef has got that kitchen in line and they're working as they should be. It's the rest of the experience that makes a three-star Michelin. And I, I must tell you, in the three restaurants I ate at, I was almost in tears by the precision. There were 29 people at our table, and to go into a three-star mission and have 30, 29 people serve in a, it almost, it, it was almost like a ballet. It was so precise, so exacting. We were all served at the same time simultaneously. Every plate, every piece of food was exactly in a line to all 29 people at all times. Never a question. Never, and then if there was a fork or a knife out of place, they didn't put it back. They took it off and brought you a clean one. They didn't have any idea if you touched it, whether you had or not, was not important. It was just not the way. And to see a table setting in a three-star Michelin, uh, most people would be absolutely blown away. Uh, it just is such a yeah. remarkable experience. Now, not going to kid you, 
uh, you know, I, I, being a judge, we certainly got everything was absolutely perfect. But there is everything is absolutely perfect in a three-star Michelin. Uh, but it's not for the faint of heart. It is not inexpensive. It is terribly expensive. And so you do this for a, you do this for experience. I went to Maxime's in Paris when I was in uh, the last when I was in New York, which is one of the finest restaurants. It, it goes back uh, to the days of uh, all the great Toulouse Lautrec, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway. All these people would eat there. Uh, it was it was the most remarkable place in the world. Uh, they their wine cellar is fifty five million dollars worth of wine because some of the wine wow. is that old. Some of the wine, I mean, they have they have bottles of wine there for $20,000, so you got That's you incredible. Yeah. yeah, but the food, again, the food, the presentation, uh, everything, even the water glass has their Monica. It, it, it's just absolutely remarkable. I, uh, I got to, of course, I told you, blowing my way in the kitchen, but the maitre d' had to tell me a story. Because I when I go anywhere, when I'm doing a show, I always got my tape recorder, I interview. So I asked the, uh, the maitre who's been there 40 years, uh, he was actually the maitre sommelier for 40 years. And I said, what's the most memorable event? Now, bear in mind, he has served five popes and eight princes. I mean, he's just got, you know, kings and queens. But he said, the most remarkable evening was when Aristotle and Nassus came in. And he said, I want to have a private dinner with my wife at the time of Jackie Kennedy and Nassus. And he said, so they rented the entire restaurant. I saw pictures circa 1961-62. And it was over 330,000 francs. It was uh, essentially almost a half a million dollars just so they could have a table for two. But wow. Horace L. Ness, you know, he spills that much, so we're, yeah, we're right. not a problem. There. Right, right, <laughs> no. right. I, I love your explanation and, and, and how you laid out uh, the Michelin experience. And it's funny, kind of like how we try to tie in with our podcast is it's we try to capture the whole experience of, of fly fishing. It's not just going out there, getting your feet wet, and hoping to catch something. It's much more than that. It's about about getting there. It's about what you see, hear, feel, and smell when you're there. You know what the water feels like. You know coursing around your legs. You know how warm or cold the air is. The catching of the fish is the bonus. You know, but even on the worst day, I can tell you. This guy sitting here next to me, Ben, could have the best day because he's going to wrap that up and say, "Hey, regardless of if I had a tug on the line or not, he was I, I, I'm I'm immersed in nature, and, and you you can't beat the scenery, you can't beat everything happening around you, you can't find these sounds anywhere else." And then that's where we tie in the food piece is like, well, how do you wrap that day up or how do you keep that day going? Is by also if you're enjoying something, you're enjoying like for us, it's it's a burrito of some sure. sort. But it, it feeds it feeds that fire. It fuels us to keep on going. So I think that's a pretty it, it, weird. Really, it's a kind of a different mashup. I don't want to compare fly fishing to a three star Michelin, but it's it, but the, the similarities are the same. Where you know you're immersed. I have a very dear friend who I lost about a year ago this time, who was a big fly fisherman. I mean, he's done the world. He's been to New Zealand. Uh, he's fished uh, in Switzerland. I mean, he, that it was a very big passion. And one day he explained to me uh, the difference between fly fishing and the rest of the world. He said, the rest of the world, that's a sport. Fly fishing has a purpose. Yes. It's great. And I, I'll always remember it has a purpose. 
I will always remember him telling me that. And I mean, obviously, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, you, the, the river, a river runs through it. Right. And, and if you're, again, um, I, I'm watching The Crown on, on uh, Showtime or whatever it's on. Netflix. But I, uh, the, the royals, they were buried in the park for sure. They, they found that a serenity and uh, you know, an isolation, which they so praised. <laughs> well, and that that's a motherland, you know, of sorts for for the fly fishermen. It's, it's England and Scotland, and it's uh, steeped richly in, in customs and courtesies, which we don't uh, wholeheartedly adopt here. Sure. So we, we try to, we make an effort to, because those extra steps that they take, just as with you know a, a fine culinary outfit, make the difference. You make the appreciation that much greater. You know, it's taking your time, you know, I tell people is you have all the time in the world when you're out there. Sure. You know, it's not like you said, like the fast food restaurant. People want that. They get on the water, they want that. I want to catch that right. biggest, fattest fish as fast as I can. And then my question is, then what? Then then what? You know, well, I'm going to do it again. You're like, are yeah. you? You know, so. And you're right. And, and so <laughs> when, when you're out game fishing or sport fishing, yeah, know, sure. Uh, that's synonymous with drinking. And you have to have beer. I mean, you go, you go, you go out. Uh, you're down in Cabo, and you go fishing. Uh, they, the first thing they ask, how many cases do you want? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> when you go to fly fishing, and, and at the end of fly fishing, that's cone count. Uh, that's Correct. that's, but, but that's after the fact. That is for you to contemplate your experience and uh, uh, to relish not only the savory flavor of the cognac, uh, but to stimulate the memory of what you were just experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think Scotland is a great example. I mean, uh, if you've ever been to Scotland, it rains. <laughs> and then there are good days when it only rains a little. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. Know, right. The bucolic, the bucolic scenery uh, is so very much a part of, uh, of fly fishing. And uh, I, I think unlike, unlike the, the big game fishing where you're out on a boat in the water, even in the Trent River, you know, you, you mentioned how gentle and how serene you are with fish. As a little kid, I used to sit in the bow of the boat with a hammer handle and game fish when they don't die right away. And if you've ever seen a muskellunge uh, that's four and a half feet long, they got teeth <laughs> as right. pikes. So I would sit there and bang those fish in the head until they finally stopped flopping. So uh, I, I, that, that was my job. <laughs> right. That's great. It was your job to dispatch the muskies. <laughs> And that's kind of, maybe you could speak to a little bit about that because that is not a native fish in our area. Right. Um, we do have one or two somewhat local lakes that do have some northern pike in them, sure. um, but they're not, you know, they're they're not chased after people if you aren't aware of it. But the muskies, I think it's a whole whole different game where it's 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 a beautiful fish, it's huge, you know, but the tenacity and the damage it can do to a, a human, maybe you can define that. Because well, you're just explaining, trying to hit yeah. it on the head to get it to go away. They, they both throw so. up. The, the, the biggest thing that I will always remember is remember my grandfather was a very, for his day, was quite the conservationist. I mean, he was very strict on uh, the size of the fish he brought in. But what people don't realize is on a standard fishing test line, nothing special. The standard rod and reel is what you caught a muskie on. And you had to play that muskie. You had a lure, but you played that muskie. And sometimes you play that muskie for 45, 50 minutes, sometimes longer. Wow. I mean to see, and it was all a matter of 
it was a matter of a man against that fish, and the fish had the advantage. And the biggest thing you have to worry about on uh, rivers and lakes is uh, they like to lurk um, in the undergrowth. They like to lurk, you know, that's where they, 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 they like to hide out there. So once you get them, the biggest thing is to, uh, my grandfather always used to say, we have to maneuver them into the deeper water so the fisherman has a fighting chance. So it was quite, but when you see this standard rod bent like a rainbow hmm. and someone sitting there and keeping the right amount of tension on that line for 45 minutes, hour, uh, it's it's quite a, it, it's, it, it won't ever leave you. you. You'll be impressed, particularly when you get the thing on the boat. And of course you have to net them to get them on the boat. But uh, you know, I, I should, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't bring a picture. I have pictures. I should bring it out. I'll make sure you guys see one and we can talk about the radio next time. So, that's yeah, great. That's, no, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I think we wanted to talk a little bit about preparation of, of some certain fish. I know we talked a little bit about, um, we touched a little bit about on the perch. And then I think we specifically wanted to talk a little bit about an interesting fish that people may not be too aware about here, but that's actually quite a treat is a walleye. Well, again, it's it's a it's a trout. I mean, well, again, it's in the trout family. The walleye. The preparation uh, that I came up with is very, 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 very simple. Uh, do you want to remove the skin or not? I think walleye, from everything that I have read and know about walleye, it's better to have them as fillet. It's a better fish to cook as a fillet. Uh, it just it it. it, it you don't have to wear the skin sometimes, it can be a little iffy. So I, I, I what I found, and it's really simple, uh, once you remove the skin, all you're gonna do is have butter, you're gonna have some lemon pepper, something a little different with that. Uh, and, and you're gonna season the fish and with and the melted butter, and then you're gonna just fry it. Uh, again, uh, you, you don't, uh, I don't, something like a walleye, once you have the fillets, you can, if you have, I like to do brown butter, if you really want to be really delicate with it, you can just do it without putting any kind of a batter on it. You can actually fry it, fry it rather in the lemon pepper uh, and, and fry it in brown butter on both sides without dusting it, without anything. And I think that's that's a really easy way to do it uh, if you like, if you want to do something that simple. But um, I, I think from everything I read again, I think the walleye, the fillets are probably uh, the, the best way to go. So uh, you have to put a little more effort in cleaning the fish. And, uh, but it just, it, it, it captures the flavor, it captures the essence of the fish. Uh, and I, I, to me, that to me is the easiest. And I know that we uh, have a friend that has some, uh, we have here, this here Gold Seafood. Yes. Uh, does have, uh, I think, Minnesota. Yeah, matter of fact, he's got wild-caught uh, Minnesota walleye. Sure. And uh, I think I have one or two to send you home with, to play around with. I'd love to. Uh, yeah. It's always fun, and I, I, I love to do that. But again, I think it's really easy. It doesn't take long. Again, you're talking about just three or four minutes on one side. You yeah. just have to pay attention because it's uh, they do cook. They all fish cooks fast, and overcooked fish is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> not fun. And, and the other thing, let me say something about uh, the delicate nature of, of of a trout. There are a lot of people out there uh, who are going to put ketchup on a porterhouse, uh, and you have to remember, tartar sauce was not made for delicate fish. Never made for delicate fish. I'm grimacing. Please, please <laughs> do not this. think the essence of 
the simple flavoring, yeah. uh, as I mentioned, uh, is uh, parsley, dill, and rosemary, and butter and lemon. That's enough. That's really enough. Um, I know you had mentioned something about a piccata. Again, that's a white wine with a little butter and a little bit of salt and pepper and a little bit of capers, and that's fine. And that you know you can you can I, I you know you fry the fish, you make piccata sauce, boom, you put it on, uh, and that's it. And it, it but again, uh, nothing that is going to overwhelm the flavor of the fish because others are going to. But when I when I when I see people ask for tartar sauce with fresh, I mean just like the Dover sole. It means absolutely nothing. They usually have a little brown butter with it. Brown butter, if you want to do some almonds, um, there's a treatment that you can stuff uh, you can stuff a, a trout with uh, that um, centers around uh, a, a, almost a ratatouille uh, with pecans. So, but again, uh, you prepare it because you're not going to have it's not going to be in the baking side long enough to cook through. So you kind of pre-prepare it. Uh, and, and then you can put pecans in there if you want a little more texture. You can do a savory pecan or you can do a sweet pecan. Uh, there's just a whole lot of fun things. Of course, in this day and age, uh, the, the best uh, the best uh, recipe is Google. Uh, you, you can just Google anything you can imagine uh, and find how to do it. And the instructions and directions are very simple to do. Uh, again, the preparation of fish is not, not I, I think the, um, I've done poached salmon with a champagne sauce with it, uh, which, you know, it was, uh, it's a little heavier sauce, but uh, for, for, it was a whole salmon, and it was part of about a seven-course meal, so it was, we needed, we needed to have the offsets, and so that was what we did uh, with the salmon, but, uh, uh, you know, again, cooking fish is not difficult, uh, and simplicity is better. Nice. You've, you've got such a unique experience coming from the catching of the food to the preparation of the food to the, the real understanding of how to savor the food and savor life, essentially. But what, what piece is your favorite of, you know, your culinary, your full culinary experience? Where do you like to be the most in that process? Well... It's interesting. I I did work for about three and a half years in a restaurant in San Francisco back in the 80s uh, while I was working on my master's called Washington Square Bar and Grill. And in its day, it was the restaurant. It was one of the restaurants. And it was quite a dynamic. I mean, it was uh, one of the things is I ran the front of the house and the wine side. Uh, but I was also uh, in the kitchen every so often for certain dishes, like a true zabio uh, there that the chef say, if you want to sell it, you're going to make it. And so I learned how to make the zabio the right way. Uh, but the greatest thing of all is uh, is giving people an experience. And so everybody in the, in the, in the restaurant business uh, that is successful gives the customer an experience. And you know that because they keep coming back. And that's, that's the biggest. I love the front of the house because I'm a very people person. I love to sell wine. Um, but I like to be creative. Uh, you know, this being Thanksgiving, I, even though I did not attend a family dinner, I still cooked the dinner. And I really, and I cooked everything from the beginning and from scratch. Uh, I, I always Weber my turkey. I use pumpernickel and ciabatta in my dressing. So I had very sufficient recipe there. 
Uh, the sweet potatoes, I do a Jack Daniels sweet potatoes uh, for that. Um, I do three different pies. I do a Dutch apple pie, I do a regular pumpkin pie, and then I do a brandy chiffon with a, a ginger snap crust uh, for that. And uh, I'll, I'll make uh, buttermilk biscuits, I mean, just all kinds of fun things. And I like to do that from scratch for, for people. I, uh, I do a lot of, I mean, I, I, I used to do a lot of charity uh, private dinners, uh, which were, you know, several thousand dollars. And that included one, so everything had to be there. Um, I, I often love, I mean, I cook with foie gras when I have people over sometimes. I mean, a lot of times I'll do a full nine course meal, so I mean, I love to cook too. Um, but I just, I, I think, actually, I love to be waited upon, I love to be sitting there and say, Give me, give me, give me, and uh, and it's try different things. You know, this is the thing. Uh, the biggest mystery to me uh, about restaurants, uh, when people go to a restaurant, is uh, what do they order for breakfast, uh, or what do they order rather for, for a meal? And it's something along with steak. You know, I, I'm just a little. Uh, I mean, I, I remember great steakhouses in this town, but uh, I, I, you know, the idea of going to a restaurant always ordering steak. Uh, I, I want something different. Like I say, there was a couple of restaurants. One I still think has it oversold. So if I go there, I'm going to have that because I just don't get it. So I mean, I want I want something. And I look at the specials. I'm always curious about the specials because that's the chef trying to make a statement. And, right. and, and it's very important right. when, when, when you see a special, uh, think about it because the chef is putting a little extra energy into it. Uh, and, I, and it's their focus of, I want to see if I can get some of the like this. Uh, and, I, and I always look for specials. And I love that you mentioned that because it's usually a misnomer that when someone sees a special, they're thinking, oh, they have too much of yeah. that. Quite, quite the opposite. <laughs> or leftovers of this. And, it, and you're right, it's, it's the chef trying to express yourself. You see, in a restaurant, you have a routine. You, when you yeah. have your menu, everybody knows their menu, and they know how the menu comes yeah. together and what their role in putting that menu together. When you have a special, the chef is now outside the box. So there's always going to be a reaction, and there will always have to be augmentation, and that can interrupt the flow of the kitchen. And so uh, you have to have a really good staff in the kitchen and know your people, and again, uh, being doing a special uh, is something that the chef is again trying to make a statement. Awesome. And then, so I have, I'm going to put you on the spot here, chef. Yes. So normally, yeah. I would come around and ask you for uh, your opinion on a favorite burrito. But I'm going to take a little bit different approach this time. And I got two questions for you. One, since we're on the topic of seafood, yeah. uh, maybe your all time favorite or your number one go-to or I wish I could have again seafood dish and then if, if you have a number two to that you know or if uh, you know there's this other favorite dish doesn't have to involve seafood I'm just curious to know what what your favorites are seafood and you know, just regular plate anywhere in the world that you've been well certainly uh, if I could find a great seafood gumbo uh, I like just spice I like spice now I mean believe me like I said, I, 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 uh, sea bass, I love a good sea bass. Um, I've had char, I've had a lot of very interesting fish over the years. Uh, a halibut, you'll never, I'll say, never say no to halibut. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know those, are, those are wonderful fish too. Uh, but I, I think, I, I like spice, I like, uh, I like, you know, okra and all the wonderful things that go into a great seafood gumbo that, that you can get. Uh, and again, I had the pleasure of being in New Orleans for five days, and so I had my fill of everything 
Cajun. And I, and I, what so a I, place to have that. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's where you were. But I, I think probably uh, as far as that goes, um, again, the Dover Soul will always, you know, it, yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, when you get it here, it's really good. And it's not bad. Uh, it's not bad, but it's, uh, I'll, you know, I, my, my brain is hitched to the, the day of the Dover Soul. Um, <laughs> and as far as my other go-to foods, I, again, I will always look at what's on the menu uh, in the way of a special. I'll always uh, entertain with a special. And if it's creative, uh, I, you know, it needs to be creative uh, for me to, to want to venture into it. So I'll look at that. When I go to a restaurant again, uh, I, I always try to look for something with flavor. I, I always like a little lift, as they say in the business, something with a little more spice to it. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, I always look, I, I always, what it, I always kind of know what, what are your vegetables, I want to know what the vegetables are. Cause uh, you know, in a, in a line restaurant where you know you, you have such a preparation process, things get pretty stagnant. You get the same old, same old. Uh, I'm always looking for creative potatoes. I, I really, I really, if someone has a five cheese scallop potato or a, a scallop potato, a house scallop potato, I'll look for things like that. Um, uh, I love, you know, tableside service, which is almost gone uh, for many right. reasons. To, uh, certainly, it can't happen today. But uh, table side service, uh, of course, is what makes a dining experience an experience, uh, the show business of food. And when you have people that are highly qualified uh, and knowledgeable, uh, I did an article that was, uh, you can go, if you, if you know the website, This Is Reno. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. You, you can go to uh, This Is Reno uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, they published my article called The Last of the Epicurean Emperors. And it was the story of the great days of Harris Steakhouse and the great people, the great people. And it was about the people. And, it, and I described the experience of watching each of these people make a specific dish. So if you go to, you put Harris Steakhouse in their search box, and I'm sure you can get it, but uh, Harris Steakhouse is no more. And regrettably, what really, uh, what really made me think I got to get this article published was when I said, when, when I saw that the New developments are going to turn it into a storage room, so uh, you know it was. Uh, that hurts. Yeah, it hurts. To, it hurts for all the people who had experience of, of a lifetime down there, with the most delightful, most wonderful people, the greatest servers. I mean, one of the gentlemen had been there forty-three years as a server, uh, and he was a very about five-five. Uh, he was from the Philippines. His name was Bong. Uh, he was educated as an engineer and came here and worked his way up from a dishwasher to a server. And he was the last one of the staff who had actually had served Bill Harris. So, uh, you know, but the story, all that is wow. in the story. But it's a fun story of, of the greatness of people who make a restaurant an experience and not just a, a place where you put an afternoon lunch and, and dig in. So. <laughs> right, right. Um, I. It's, it's really motivating to listen to you, and it's a call for me or a listener to take the time to and make an investment and experience also the finer side of life. I've gained a, a great appreciation for it listening to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, and always love listening to the Weekend Magazine because the, the way that you take that deep dive into whatever that you're talking about, whether it's, it's a wine tasting or it's a restaurant or it's a, 
a rancher, a producer, or you know anything that has to do with the culinary arts. It's always a joy to listen to, and uh, and we're uh, we appreciate you taking your time, you know, to come and sit down with us. Uh, on this level of podcast, <laughs> well, we, my, we, we feel we're pretty honored to have you. We're very well, honored to have you here. Uh, thank so. you for having me. Yeah. I'm just old and grumpy, but uh, <laughs> my 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 motto, my moniker, whatever you want to call it, has always been Carpe Diem. And uh, everywhere I go, everywhere I end my show with Carpe Diem, uh, seize the day, uh, and, and that's the important thing. And uh, food should be an experience. Uh, it should be a, an experience. Uh, that uh, elicits a memory uh, and uh, keeps you wanting to come back. Uh, and food today is more a reaction than a memory. Uh, it is a reaction. We, we, I mean, the In-N-Out Burger in South Virginia is, boy, what I love to have that franchise. It is unbelievable. <laughs> we, we can actually see it yeah, from yes. where it, we're it sitting. It is so yes. unbelievable <laughs> yes. how people are there Night and day, and, yep. and, and it's because they have one of the. This is a great. We want to talk about a, a secret in, in, in restaurants. They have a very small menu, very small. Yeah. They have a very finite system for preparing and distributing the food. Again, it's so compact, it's so perfect, and they train their people very well to do a very simple job, and that is just to take an order and present a product which is already established and wanted and that's why it's so successful it, it has nothing to do with the flash of the building or the slogans it has to do with a perfected process that is so simplistic in the delivery of food and that's why they're so successful and they built a long-term customer oh, and I think absolutely. that's and, that, and that's what a lot of uh, restaurants strive for I mean I can tell you I grew up in Southern California and as a kid I loved going to In-N-Out but I can tell you now you know Heck, you know, thirty some years out of Southern California, and from being a kid wanting to go there, I, I can go to a, a to an In and Out, and guess what? It tastes the same as when I was a kid. Exactly, consistency, and, yeah. and, and that's and that's which, which is the essence of, of a restaurant. It consistency is consistency. Is. is the essence of a restaurant. Right. Well, I wish you could just staple that on to more <laughs> sit down restaurants. Well, I, I, if there's, there's if there's one, there. if there is one fear I have of the food industry is the food service side of the industry. People who go into food service, I would say in the 98th percentile, are there as a bridge. It's going from, I gotta go, I, I was doing this, I, I gotta do something else, until I figure out that something else, I'm gonna become a server. And therein lies part of the, uh, the I don't wanna say toxicity, or I, I don't wanna use a negative word, but uh, People who are not good servers uh, and see it as just a paycheck are not helping the establishment or helping the experience. They're quite the opposite. They're deterring. I mean, um, they're often too aloof. Uh, they're not well prepared, uh, and they they don't know the basics of their trade. That's the way. because the turnover is so great. I trained food service people for when I first came here. I did do some food service training, and I trained in several casinos. And at one point, I had a good business going. All of a sudden, I realized, one day an HR person said, you know, I don't know how much longer we can do this, because every time I would come in, there were 60 new people. And it's like, uh, you lost 60 people, oh yeah. And, and 
and eventually it all went away. But uh, I had some really fun experiences uh, uh, teaching people uh, how to be servers and teaching them the fundamentals. I'm not talking about the finite points. You know, you cannot teach a personality. Uh, you cannot teach an awareness of, uh-oh, they need their water glasses empty. You know, these are, these are all things that you develop over time with a good mentor who will make sure you pay attention. The biggest thing in the food service industry is learning to pay attention, but not be a loser. Mm. Right, it's that, that level of care. Yeah. You just can't teach care. Yeah. And, and a lot of times you can't teach pride. And unfortunately, too many people see this as that bridge job. And they don't take a lot of pride in what they do because they know that they're going to be done after an eight-hour shift and it is what it is. But it's all about the pride. And that's, that's where the successful people uh, evolve into great servers. And knowing the menu. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know. great, but a great chef will quite often, uh, if, 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 it's, if there's any of the specials, particularly uh, many times a chef will pre-taste the staff because you're not going to sell something you can't believe in. And so it's very important to pre-taste the staff right. so that they know what it tastes like. And you know, because and, and people are going to decide the menu item or the special. So you already know what the menu item is. And if the special, wow, if you, if you like this, but you want something a little different, this is, this is really good. So. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, many times you sit down and the, the common question is, "Hey, what what would you what would you order, yeah. Mister Server?" Right. You know. Oh and, yeah, A or B. Which one of these do you like better? Yeah. Right. And, and half the time that some coming from some people, that's an honest question because they don't know what to order. If I ask it, it's more of a trick question because yeah. I'm going to say, "Do what do they know yeah. about this?" Sure. You know. And then you can see if they're best in it, if they understand the menu item, you know, if they're just like, oh, it's just got the seasoning on it, and then and you're like, great, thank you very much. Come back in five minutes. So, <laughs> well, again, thank you, Chef, for joining us. My pleasure. Great time. We uh, we took in a lot of information, and uh, we love it. Yeah. We, we love it. You, you truly are. Yeah. Your trademark, the guru of the good life. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. And then for anything uh, that we spoke about, I think we have maybe a, a, a few um, a few recipes. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll you'll have the recipes so you can put them up at your website. Great. Get them to you in the next 24 hours. Thank you, and we'll get that up on bearfishalliance.com, and we'll put that in the uh, in the podcast section so you can look those up and download them and take a look at them, and, and please put them to use because I guarantee uh, they're going to uh, make you very happy. So, and I guess the other thing is, if anybody has a question, uh, an easy way to reach me is at weekendmagazine at kkoh.com. Uh, all one word: weekendmagazine at kkoh.com. And I see that email every day, and I am very, very good about responding. So. Beautiful, beautiful, perfect. All right. Well, again, thank you, Chef, for joining us. And uh, until next time, uh, tight lines and stay safe. We wanted to give another special thank you to uh, one of our sponsors today, and that is uh, number one was Bella Italia Restaurant and Giuseppe Zappala for letting us use his restaurant today. Uh, ben, why don't you take a look around? What do you see here? Well, we're doing the podcast live here, and we're inside of Bella Italia. It's a beautiful restaurant. We're in the back. Um, all the tables are quaint. It makes me think of what I would experience if I was in Italy. And I have a sweet spot in my heart for Giuseppe, even though I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him personally like you have, Nico. Yeah. But yep. <laughs> I'm a giant fan of his butternut squash ravioli. 
you've given me a few of those and yeah it's great yeah it feels like you're more than a fan i think you kind of went head over heels for him like you yeah like you were really excited about him and i don't get that excited about food very often you don't if anything it's always like this lingering disappointment so that's a plus that's a plus so you heard it from ben bella italia uh magnificent raviolis and all kinds of other dishes but um yeah take your time when you can and come on down here and, and have a meal and we also like to thank sierra gold sierra gold supplied us today uh with our test kitchen ingredients of our fresh caught wild caught minnesota walleye which chef dave preston is going to prepare up into something quite fantastic and we should see that very soon so pretty excited about that so thanks again to our sponsors and we'll see you on the next podcast a boy went back to Napoli Because he missed the scenery The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong Cause now it's Hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano Hey, hey Mambo Mambo Italiano, go, go, go. You mixed up a Siciliano, all you calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with the hey mambo. Don't wanna tarantala, hey, hey mambo. No more mozzarella, hey mambo. Mambo Italiano, try an angelada with the fish bacala and then hey goomba. My love, how you dance the rumba. But take some advice, Paisano. Learn how to mambo. If you're gonna be a square, you ain't gonna go nowhere. Hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano. Hey, hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano. Go, go, Joe. Shake it like a Giovanna. Hello, kiss it, did you? You get happy in the pizza when you mambo. Italiano. To go to the school, choose to make it with a beat of bambino. It's like a bean. Kid, you good looking, but you don't know what you're cooking, do you? Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Hey, hey mambo, mambo italiano. Ho, ho, ho. You mixed up a Siciliano. Hello, kiss a DJ. You get happy in the pizza when you mambo italiano.